Today's scripture comes from Matthew 21, verses 1 through 17. Now when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethphage, to the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, The Lord needs them, and he will send them at once. This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, saying, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. The disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and put on them their cloaks, and he sat on them. Most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road, and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And the crowds that went before him and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord! Hosanna in the highest. And when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up, saying, Who is this? And the crowd said, This is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. And Jesus entered the temple and drove out all who sold and bought in the temple, and he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. He said to them, It is written, My house shall be called a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. And the blind and the lame came to him in the temple, and he healed them. But when the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things that he did, and the children crying out in the temple, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant, and they said to him, Do you hear what these are saying? And Jesus said to them, Yes, have you never read, Out of the mouth of infants and nursing babies you have prepared praise? And leaving them, he went out of the city to Bethany and lodged there. Yeah, Father, we do, we do want to come to you. We ask... Um, we, we, we just want to pause and, and pray for, for Jake and for his family. Father, we pray that you would uh, care for them and, and minister to their needs. Father, we pray that you would restore Jake to health. God, we that you would bless us as, as your church now as we turn to your word. God, we want to we wanna hear from you. God, we know that there's a spiritual battle going on right now for our hearts and for our minds. And God, we just pray that you would win. We, we pray that you would help us to see who Jesus is this morning. And would that just change the way we live our lives? We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, good morning. Uh, if you have a Bible, I do invite you to turn to that passage that you heard read, Matthew chapter 21, verses 1 to 17. This morning, we are going to take a little bit of a break from our series in 1 Corinthians, and we're going to pause for today, Good Friday, Resurrection Sunday, to look at the events of Easter. You see, there is a, a question at the very center of the Bible. There's a question that, that drives the plot forward. There's a, there's a question that reaches its focus in the person of Jesus. And then that question is finally resolved at Easter. The, the question is this. Who is God? Who is he? Now, now it's one thing to talk about what God does... It's an altogether different thing to talk about who he is. Now, those two are certainly related. So who you are affects what you do, and what you do affects the way others interpret who you are. But, but this is what I know. 
I know it is possible to understand what someone does and misunderstand who they are. Therefore, I, I think the priority should be the question, who is he? If we know who he is, then we understand what he's doing and ultimately why he's doing it. So who is God? Now, I, I, don't, I don't think this question is just a question that Christians need to answer. I think even if you're not a follower of Jesus, I think if you're going to be intellectually honest, that this is something you should at least try to answer for yourself, right? Right. So who is God? This, this God that created and fostered the, the fastest growing religion in, in the entire world? Who is God that totally reoriented the, the Roman culture and society at the time? Who, who is the God that, that changed the way people approached human dignity? The, the people who tried to end the African slave trade and, and give value and worth to women? Who is it that changed the, the, the laws of our society, especially in the West? Who, who is the God that, that caused men and women to die if only they could tell others about him? Who is God? Now, why, why am I telling you this? Um, this morning, we, we're going to look at a very familiar passage. If, if you grew up in the church, you've probably heard dozens of Palm Sunday sermons, right? If you're a parent, this is, this is the Sunday that is the bane of your existence because every single Palm Sunday, you go home with a new paper leaf. My daughter, uh, she... She now knows I just go into these purging modes. And so when friends come over, she just says, hey, take this. My dad's going to throw it out anyways. That, that's, that's what I do with all of these paper leaves from Palm Sunday. So why look at this familiar passage? Well, you see, um, each of the gospel writers, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, decided to include this story uh, of Jesus' entry into Jerusalem. They did that even though, look, paper and ink were not cheap. Go, they know, hey, Mark wrote the gospel first. He, they go, hey, Mark included this. Why should we include it also? The answer is, is they go, if you miss this story, if you don't understand what happens on Palm Sunday, you may misunderstand what happens on Good Friday and on Easter Sunday. Now, it, this may surprise you, but as important as it is to know who God is, Jesus has been very intentional up to his triumphal entry of actually concealing his identity. He, he, he's trying to hide, in fact, who he is. So, so in Matthew chapter 8, we read this. When he came down, that's Jesus, from the mountain, great crowds followed him. And behold, a leper came to him and knelt before him, saying, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. And Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him, saying, I will be clean. And immediately his leprosy was clean, cleansed. And Jesus said to him, see that you say nothing to anyone. See that you say nothing to anyone, but go. Show yourself to the priests and offer the gift that Moses has commanded for a proof to them. 
Or maybe more clearly, in Matthew chapter 16, we read this. Simon Peter replied, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And then verse 20, Then he, that's Jesus, strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. Don't, don't tell him who I am. But then that all changes on Palm Sunday. You see, if you have eyes to see it, the, the events that transpire the week leading up to Easter resemble the coronation of a Roman emperor. So when there would be a new Roman emperor to take the throne, the emperor would first be anointed with oil by a governing official. They would then institute a covenant or a new legal agreement with the people he was going to rule over. He would then be dressed in a robe and given a crown, and then he would be placed on a throne. Those exact same events are written in the week leading up to Jesus' death. He's anointed with expensive perfume. He institutes the Lord's Supper, which he calls the new covenant in his blood. He is robed in purple, a purple gown and given a crown of thorns. And then he is elevated onto his throne, which is the cross. The cross is the throne of God. Augustine says, none other than Jesus decided to rule from a wooden beam. But the first event of that Roman coronation, and the first event for Jesus, was his entrance into the city in which they would rule. You see, Jesus never rode an animal anywhere else that we are aware of. And yet Jesus makes these plans to ride into Jerusalem on an animal. He, he didn't do that before, but he's, he's trying to make it crystal clear, I am your coming king. That's who Jesus wants us to see that he is. He's our king. He's our king. And so I have three simple points. Jesus is the gentle king. He's the people's king. I'll explain that one. And thirdly, he is the complete king. So here we go. First, the gentle king. Look at, look at verse 1 again. Now when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethpage, to the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples. So it, it's, it's the Passover it's the highest festival, the, the biggest celebration in the Jewish calendar. It's estimated that the city of Jerusalem would swell to be about 2.4 million people. They would celebrate God's delivery of Israel from Egypt. And so Jesus, in order to be there for this festival, decides to make a trek from Galilee. He's coming from the north. It's a five-day journey by foot, and finally he arrives at the Mount of Olives. He's been doing these miracles on the way, and so you, the, the, the crowds are snowballing, if you will. And so verse 2 says this, he said to his disciples, go into the village in front of you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. 
If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, the Lord needs them, and he will send them at once. So Jesus sends two of his disciples ahead of him to go get a donkey. I always picture, for some reason, that they do this kind of like this force thing, like the Lord needs them. And he just gets the donkey. Probably more than that, maybe he made preparations beforehand. But, but the question I want to answer is, if Jesus could get any animal, why, why a donkey? Like, you have to realize how excited his disciples are. Like, like yes, Jesus is finally going public. Like, like, Jesus is finally going to rule, and yet it's like the worst PR stunt possible. Like, like let, let, hey guys, this is what we're going to do. We're going we're gonna to ride a, a, a donkey into the city in which I'm going to rule. So why the donkey? Well, you see, 500 years earlier, Zechariah, the prophet, had predicted that the ultimate coming king, the the Messiah, the, the Christ, the anointed one, the one who would finally and fully save Israel, would ride a donkey. That's why we read this. So verse 4 says, This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, saying, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. You see, there had been other kings, other lesser kings that had come. And at first, these kings seemed promising. Like, Like maybe the people thought, this is the one. Maybe at last the, the king who would finally save us is, is here. And, and things started out looking good. Only for those kings to either fall into moral ruin or to be destroyed by powers outside of their control. And so over and over there was this expectation and then this disappointment. And so Jesus though says now, no, no, I want to make it very clear. I am the one you've been waiting for. It's me. I'm the person who will fulfill all of the prophecies. All of the promises are fulfilled in me. You don't need to keep looking for someone else. You don't need to wait for another king. I'm the one who will fulfill all of your expectations and hopes. We don't, Christ City, wait for someone else to come. Our Savior has already showed up. So that's why the donkey, but... But the animal you choose to ride in, I think, also says something about the way in which you plan to save. The animal you ride in says something about the way in which you plan to save. You see, uh, my, my family and I, we spent a year in Kentucky a few years ago. And we visited Churchill Downs. It's the site of the Kentucky Derby. It's the host of the greatest horses, the greatest thoroughbreds the world could produce. And, and what would happen before a race is they would actually parade the horses around in a circle for the, for the crowds to see. And you're, and you're looking at these, these incredible animals. They're, they have muscles to the nine. They're, they're ripped. And, and you're going, oh, I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to put my money on that one. Or, or I'm going to put my, my money on that one. And, and, you, and you bet based on the appearance of these horses. And so the question is, Jesus, if you're riding a donkey, no one's going to be betting on you. 
What, what type of conquering king rides a, a donkey? You, you see, a Roman emperor would typically ride in on a great stallion, on a war horse. And he's saying, look, if you get in my way, I will crush you. The, the way I rule is with power. You, 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 don't, you don't want to mess with me. You, you get in my way and I crush you, I hurt you, but Jesus rides a donkey to say, if you get in my way, I help you. I, I, ne- I never noticed this until this year. I, I think this is absolutely crazy, amazing, incredible. What, what is a donkey? It's a beast of burden. A donkey is a, a work animal, not, not a war animal. A donkey's job was to carry your burden. And that's what Jesus says he's coming to do. I'm carrying your load. All of your weight all of your pressure, all of those strains that are weighing you down, that's what I've come to carry. I've come to carry your burdens, not to crush you. I, I find it interesting that in verse 5, it says, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey. That, that word humble, it, it only appears four times in the New Testament. Uh, the, the clearest of those, I think, happens in Matthew chapter 11. We, we read this there. Come to me, this is Jesus talking, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle. That's the same word as humble. I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. This is the very heart of God. Gentle and lowly is what he lives for. Like, I think sometimes we think of God as being this, this sour entity somewhere out there that is indifferent towards us. Or, or, or at the very least, if he is going to deal with us, he, he needs to put on gloves. Because it's, it's as though he's dealing with some piece of trash. And, and he's too clean, too, too holy to, to have anything to, to do with us. And Jesus says, no, 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 I'm gentle. I've actually come to you in order to carry your load, to shoulder your burdens. Jesus has come to carry that which we cannot carry on our own. And it's not, it's not just the small burdens that he carries. Matthew wants to make it clear. He, he will carry our greatest burden. Uh, our sin. So if go, go look at verse 6 again. The disciples went and Jesus did, or went and did as Jesus had directed them. They, they brought the donkey and the colt and put on them their cloaks, and he sat on them. Most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road, and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And the crowds that went before him and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. 
Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. Hosanna. It's, it's this transliteration of the Hebrew word meaning save please. Hosanna. Save us, please. They, they cry out, Hosanna to the son of David. Jesus, we recognize you come from the line of David. You're the promised king. We, we see it now. Hosanna, would you save us, please, son of David? And then they say this, Hosanna in the highest. Or maybe yet better translated, Hosanna with the highest. See, what they're asking is for God to pull out all the stops. God, save us in the highest way possible. Save us in the way only you could save us. Save us in an unusual fashion. Save us the way God, who is in the highest, would save us. And that's what he went on to do. You see, Jesus saved in a way no one expected him to save. Jesus chose to, to save us in the highest fashion by, by giving up the most valuable possession, namely his own life. The, the greatest salvation that was achieved for us was accomplished by the greatest person who ever lived dying on our behalf. And it's through his death that he, he carries our sin. He carries our burden, and he goes to the cross. The, the highest salvation is a salvation in which the one person who never deserved to die chose to die for us. So that instead of paying for our sins in everlasting torment, we instead experience everlasting life and forgiveness and salvation and restoration with our King. That's how God saves us. Not by, not by crushing those who oppose him, but by carrying the burdens of those who are weak. God saves us in a way only he can because he is the gentle king. Secondly, he is the people's king. And the apostrophe is in the right place there. Let me, let me explain. So Jesus has made his way down the Mount of Olives. He's been given a royal carpet of sorts, except way more valuable. People are throwing down one of their most prized possessions, namely their clothes. And then we read this in verse 10. When he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up saying, who is this? And the crowd said, this is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. Now at first, that, that question might seem a little bit strange. Like, like what do you mean, who is this? Aren't you cheering for him? What are you cheering about then? It's strange until you realize that the people in Jerusalem are not the same people who are cheering for him. You see, the crowds that are cheering for Jesus are crowds that chose to follow Jesus from the north, from Galilee. And so Jerusalem asks them, hey, who is this person you're cheering for? And they say, it's Jesus, from Galilee, from Nazareth. They knew he was from Nazareth and Galilee because they were from Nazareth and Galilee. You see, Galileans were despised, to say the least. They, they, uh, 
they, they were viewed as, as lowly people. You see, they lived far away from Jerusalem, five days' journey, and so they couldn't be in Jerusalem next to the temple, God's house, where, where the sacrifices were supposed to dwell, uh, were supposed to take place. They, they, were, they lived amongst Romans. And so, so people in Jerusalem thought, oh my goodness, those Galileans, they're so lax. They, they don't follow the laws like we should. They're, they're probably Roman sympathizers. Galileans had accents. They're the people who said, we can't make it in Jerusalem, so we'll just go elsewhere. They were despised. They were the lowly people. And yet, it's the Galileans who get the joy of saying, this is Jesus from Galilee. He's one of us. And he's also come to save people like us. Jesus came to save people who don't live up to the world's standards. He came to save people the world thought were beyond saving. But he saves more people still. Look, look, look at verse 12. And Jesus entered the temple and drove out all who sold and bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he said to them, It is written, My house shall be called a house of prayer, but you make it a den of robbers. For someone who is supposed to be so gentle, it seems odd that Jesus gets so furious here at the temple. He literally comes in, he starts flipping tables. He's like he owns the place because he starts rearranging the furniture. What's what's going on here? Well, when when it says that Jesus entered the temple, he's not actually entering the building itself, but but the temple complex. The the whole temple complex was about a one-mile circumference, and, and there were various regions within that complex. Well, in one of those regions, people, turns out, were selling animals and exchanging currency. But, but you see, that, that had to happen. That, that was actually a necessary thing. You see, if you had just made a long trek, you couldn't carry your lamb to be sacrificed or the pigeons. You, that was just not possible. So you would want to actually show up, you'd bring your money, and you would want to buy the animal that you would want to to sacrifice. This, this purchasing, this, this farmer's market of sorts, had to take place. The, the, the problem then isn't what's going on. The problem is where it's going on. You ever have those people at work who feel like they need to always have a meeting right next to your desk? I'm this hypothetically speaking. Uh, that's, I, I'm honestly the one at fault most of the time. Um, that, that's what's going on here. You see, this market is taking place in the one place where foreigners could come and worship God. It took place in what was called the court of the Gentiles. In the court of the Gentiles. You see, see the Jewish leaders, they thought that God could not be concerned with the outsider. Like all those other nations, all those other people. I mean, is God really concerned about them? 
I mean, I mean, God's priority is us, they thought, right? We, we're God's chosen people. Who, who cares about the other nations, all the other ethnicities of the world? God's going to care about the Jew. But Jesus walks in to that court of the Gentiles, where the outsider, where the foreigner, where the Gentile could come and, and pray and worship God. And Jesus is the most animated he has seen anywhere in the Bible. He's furious. This is, this is about as passionate as Jesus gets. And he starts driving the market out. He says, this place is reserved for the outsider. Do, do, do we actually have that heart? Like, like, are we as passionate as Jesus is about reaching the people who live in other countries, who live in every nook and cranny of this world? Look at what Jesus says. He says, it is written, verse 13, my house shall be called a house of prayer, but you make it a den of robbers. That's a quote from Isaiah 56. I, I almost just preached on this passage, but th listen to these words. And the foreigners who join themselves to the Lord to minister to him, to love the name of the Lord and to be his servants, Everyone who keeps the Sabbath and does not profane it and holds fast my covenant, these I will bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar. For my house shall be called a house of prayer. And then he says this, for all peoples. For peoples. It's not just nations that Jesus is concerned about. If it was just nations, I've said this before, we would already be done. All the nations of the world have already been reached. No, no, no. It's all the little itty-bitty peoples of this world. Every distinct ethno-linguistic group, there's 10,000 of them approximately. About 40% of them have never heard the gospel. Jesus says, that's what I'm about. That's the king I am. I'm the king of the peoples. Every knee and tongue will bow and confess that I am Lord of lords. He's the gentle God who carries our burden. He forgives us of our sin, and he's the global God, the God of all peoples. He will save people from every place and culture, whether they are the esteemed or whether they're the lowly. Thirdly, he is the complete king. The complete king. I, I think it would be, I think I just splashed water on myself. Uh, I think it would be wrong to think that Jesus is only concerned about our spiritual well-being. Uh, look, look at verses 14 and onward. And the blind and the lame came to him in the temple, and he healed them. The blind and the lame. But, but when the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things that he did, and the children crying out of the temple, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant. And they said to him, do you hear what these are saying? And Jesus said to them, yes. Have you never read? Out of the mouth of infants and nursing babies, you have prepared praise. And leaving them, he went out of the city to Bethany and lodged there. You see, the Pharisees, they, they see Jesus perform this miracle of healing in the temple, and they're furious. They're furious because they see even more people now coming to worship and follow Jesus. 
Even the children have begun to praise him. If you're in marketing, you'll know that the key to your success is to capture the hearts of the next generation, right? If you can secure the next generation, if you can make sure they buy your product, you know you'll have this longevity. Well, the Pharisees, the religious rulers of the day, are afraid because this next generation is leaving them behind to follow after Jesus. And so they they come to him, and they're like, Jesus, do you hear what they're saying? They're indignant. Do, Do you hear what they're saying? And Jesus just says one word. Yes. Yes, I hear it. Yes, I receive it. And yes, I affirm it. This is, this is what I'm about. And then he quotes this. He says, Have you never read, verse 16, out of the mouth of infants and nursing babies, you have prepared praise. Now, the, the, at first, that verse doesn't, doesn't seem all that intimidating. It, se- it seems quite innocent. Ch- children will praise me. Until you realize that that quote is a quote about children praising God. So, so, so listen to Psalm 8. This is how it starts. O Lord, our Lord, or God, our God, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. Out of the mouth of babies and infants, you have established praise. So Jesus is saying, look, it's right that they're praising me because I'm God. I'm God. And healing people then as God is what I'm about. Um, my, my dad, this past Monday, had his fifth major surgery in three years. He's been um, on disability for that entire time. And, and surgery after surgery feels like it hasn't worked and even if this one works, I know he's, he's still going to deteriorate. I know he's still going to fade and, and be in pain. And, and, and it's amazing that, that in that moment, all you want is to be restored. I, I, don't, I, don't, I don't want just salvation I want you to fix me. Maybe some of you are are familiar with um, Joni Erickson Tada. She is a a godly woman who became a paraplegic at the age of 17. And, and, And she writes this. She says, I sure hope I can bring this wheelchair to heaven. Now, I know that's not theologically correct, but, but I hope to bring it and, and put it in a little corner of heaven, and then in my new perfect glorified body, standing on grateful legs, I'll stand next to my Savior, holding his narrow pierced hands, and I'll say, thank you, Jesus. And he'll know that I mean it. I find it so poignant that finally at the point when I do have the use of my arms to wipe away my own tears, I won't have to. Because God will. God, who is he? He is the king of kings and the Lord of lords. He's the king over all creation. 
and therefore he will bring complete restoration. We're, we're not going to be saved and sick. We're not going to be with Jesus in relationship with the one who made us and hurting. We'll be fixed. All will be made right. All will be restored. He will make a new world, one that is what it was always intended to be, good, with no more crying, no more pain, and no more suffering. He bring, brings complete restoration. So, so let, me, let me land this plane. Um, I, I want to I return to the question that's at the heart of this passage. Verse 10 says this, and when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up saying, who is this? Who is this? That, that word for stirred comes from the Greek word seismic. It's just where we get our word seismic from, seismos. It's, it's this earthquake that's happening in the city. The whole, the whole, the whole city is unsettled. They've been shaken from their foundation, and they need to land somewhere. And that's why Jesus has come, he said, to force us to make a decision. Who do you think I am? Who, who, who am I? See, if you're anything like me, I love to kind of play things in the middle. I don't really like commitment. I want to be like, yeah, I... Let me think about it. Let me, I'll see. That's like my favorite phrase. I'll see. You want to do this? I'll see. What do you think? I'm not sure. I'm, I'm thinking through it still. And Jesus says, no, no, no. You, you have to make a, a decision. You, you can't hedge your bets with me. Decide. Crown me or kill me. Crown me, Jesus says, or kill me. See, I think we like to think of Jesus as being this person that gives us inspiration. He's our helper. He's our friend. He's even our example. But, but did you just hear the claims that Jesus made? You're a sinner, Jesus says, and I'm the only one that can forgive you. More than that, I'm, I'm the king of all peoples. I, I'm king over every nation, every tribe, every language. And, and, and I'm the king that will make all things new. Because I created it, I can fix it. And we can't then go and hear that and go, oh, that's nice. <laughs> that's nice, Jesus. Let me think about it. You love him or you hate him, but you cannot like him. Listen to the way Reynolds Price put it. He, he wrote a book on the Gospels. He was a professor at Duke University, and, and he wrote this. If 2,000 years of pious handling had not dimmed our understanding of this story and its demand, his Gospel would still be seen as the burning outrage it continues to be. It is either a work of madness or of blinding revelation. That's all it can be. The acts it portrays, the claim it advances, from the very first paragraph, it demands that we make a hard choice. If we take the gospel writers seriously, we must finally ask the question he thrusts so flagrantly toward us. Does he bring us a life-transforming truth? Or is this one gifted lunatic's tale of another lunatic wilder than he? 
What is he to you? C.S. Lewis famously said, Jesus is either liar, lunatic, or Lord. You can't, you can't say the things Jesus said and just be a good teacher. If you talk like that, you're either crazy, you're a lunatic, you're a liar, or it's true. And he is actually king. And so Jesus is saying, look, you have to decide. Who, who do you think I am? Crown me or kill me? Make me the king of your whole life. You, you don't get to hold anything back. You don't, you don't get to reserve a little bit for yourself. You hand it all over to Jesus. You make him your king or you crucify him. Who is he? Who is Jesus? Let me pray. Father, I, I just pray now um, for hearts here who are wrestling with that very question. God, even for those of us who have answered that question and said, yes, you're king of our life, Lord, would you, would you expose areas where we have still have held on to, to something we didn't want to relinquish control of? God, would we hand that over to you? Would you help us to see that we can trust you, that you are our faithful king? God, you are the king who comes to us not to crush us, but to actually carry our burdens. Father, as we, as we turn uh, in this next week, God, and, and as we begin to look at the cross and at the empty tomb, would you make it undeniably clear, Jesus, of who you are. And I pray that that truth would be impressed deep into our hearts, God, and that we would be changed as a result of it, God. We pray this in your son's name. Amen. Hey, everyone. This is Jake, lead pastor of Christ City Church, East Vancouver. And I want to let you know about a few things. First, if you're not a part of a local church, let me invite you to join us each Sunday morning at 2605 East Pender Street in East Vancouver for worship, word, and sacrament. Second, if you are new and you want to get connected, let me say welcome. Christ City Church East Vancouver is a neighborhood church committed to making missional disciples for the sake of the neighborhood. If you want to be a part of or hear more of what we believe God has called us to do in East Vancouver, please reach out to me at jake at christcitychurch.ca.